Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Batflip Crazy Podcast, where you'll always find enthusiastic, data-driven fantasy baseball analysis and strategy. I am your host, Toby. Today, I am going to be taking a look at early season metrics to monitor. Try saying that 10 times fast. Uh, I take a look at some hitting skills or statistics, metrics, and pitching uh, skills, metrics, and, and considerations early on in seasons to determine whether players actually have changed, whether they've gotten better, whether they've gotten worse, whether they're probably the same. So that's a lot of fun uh, in terms of hitting, you know, taking a look at O-swing, contact rates, uh, X-WOBA, StatCast data, batted ball profile, and then with pitchers, velocity, pitch mix, new pitches, uh, and then I also share some tools in terms of how you research Uh, those different metrics or identify uh, those different metrics for analysis. So hopefully this is helpful. It's obviously early, early, early in the season. The sample sizes are still uh, incredibly small. And so those caveats apply. But I do think, you know, that when, when games start playing, there's always metrics that are important to monitor and consider and think about uh, when considering whether a start is sustainable in a good or a bad uh, way. And so uh, I definitely hope you find this uh, podcast helpful. I had a lot of fun doing it. It's part of my process and hopefully you can find some value in it. It also features a special uh, guest appearance very briefly uh, from my cat uh, and then uh, also my wife. And so You know, hopefully that adds a little bit of excitement in the drawl of my voice and uh, all of the metrics and numbers that I'm going to be talking about. So hopefully you enjoy that. Uh, As always, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. uh, And thank you to folks who have left a five-star rating and a review on iTunes. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. Uh, We are all the way up. I said that my goal by the beginning of the season was to be at 100. We are We're pretty close to that at 95. Uh, Just really, really appreciate uh, everybody uh, who listens to the podcast and enjoys it, weighing in there with the five-star rating and a review. It just really helps get the podcast out there, uh, helps other people see it. Uh, If you have already left a five-star rating and a review or you just feel better about doing it, uh, you can like it, you can retweet it and share it. I would greatly, greatly appreciate that. So thank you all uh, so much. As I always say, it's just awesome to have Uh, such a great community of folks um, who are supportive of the podcast. And yeah, thank you so very much for that. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at BatFlipCrazy. You can also uh, follow uh, my uh, website, BatFlipCrazy.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, but I haven't updated those in a little bit. Some YouTube, uh, if you search for BatFlipCrazy on YouTube, I do think there are some uh, there's some videos up there that are, I think will be helpful, you know, just in terms of looking up different, uh, statistical metrics, including some of the ones that I mentioned, uh, in the podcast today, uh, that includes some rolling average graphs for hitters, for pitchers, creating a custom dashboard, uh, in fan graphs. So, uh, hopefully you can find those, uh, to be helpful. I'm also at 50 subscribers. I think if I get to hundred, then I actually get to name my YouTube channel. So that would be pretty cool. Anyways, uh, you guys don't care that much about that. So early season metrics to monitor. Uh, I really hope uh, folks uh, enjoy this. Um, I really hate the beginning of the season. I mentioned this in the podcast at the beginning, but 
you know, I just hate the beginning of the season because there's just so, it's so hard to figure out what to do with the minimal data that we have. And the result is just trying to find things that have meaning and a bunch of meaninglessness, including the fact that, you know, in my three biggest leagues, which are the two main events and TGFBI, I am currently ranked 550th, I think, uh, and 513th, my two teams in the main event out of like 580. And then I'm 309 out of like 320 in the TGFBI. So the beginning of the season has been brutal uh, for me, but it's early and there's still a chance for me to recover. At least I, I hope so. So hope you enjoy the podcast. Early season metrics to monitor. Let's get this party started. All right, today we are going to talk about early season metrics to monitor. So we often hear about small sample sizes at the beginning of the season um, and how we really need to wait for a little while to have larger sample sizes to be able to get at, really get a good idea of how a player is performing and whether there's any type of skill decline, whether it's you know their underlying skills like contact rates, plate discipline, or you know, batted ball quality, outcomes, etc. And so one of the things that I like to do early on in the season, first of all, I hate the beginning of the season. I really do. I cannot stand it because you have such small sample sizes and it's you can't you can't really glean much from any of it, right? There can be extremes where you may be able to um, you know, gather a little bit of information, but generally speaking, we're all just looking at, you know, metrics that just don't really make a, a big difference in the grand scheme of things and don't really tell us anything about the season moving forward. And for me, you know, a guy who, who just kind of geeks out going on fan graphs, looking at plate discipline leaderboards, looking at, you know, uh, you know, all, all of the underlying metrics and kind of getting a sense of how they're all working together to create player performance, that can be incredibly, incredibly frustrating. But I do think that there are some really um, critical things that you can look for early in the season and really throughout the season um, over small samples to get a sense of whether there is maybe a change in underlying skill or uh, you know possible uh, performance that could improve or get worse depending on you know, what the underlying metrics are telling us. And so I wanted to delve into these a little bit and kind of explain my own process in the hopes that, you know, it may be able to um, help you, um, you know, in your team, or, or maybe you can incorporate into your own process and your own analysis and get a little bit of, you know, something out of it. So I'll start with hitters and I'll kind of go through some of the metrics that I'm looking for. Uh, and kind of how I use my process to validate some of the early season metrics that we see. And then I'll go through pitchers and look at, you know, similar, similar things. And I think kind of the overarching thing that I will say is that, like everybody says, it's very, very small sample sizes. Don't make any uh, super concrete or um, huge uh, there's nothing huge to take out of them, right? You can't tell whether a player is going to be good or whether a player is going to be bad, um, generally speaking, out of these very, very small sample sizes. But again, I think there is data that you can look at 
that can help you as part of your process. So with that major caveat out of the way, um, two things that I really like to look at in hitters, just getting going at the start of the season, is chase rate and contact skills. One reason uh, that I like to do this is, number one, it gives you a sense of the player's uh, underlying hitting skills. Um, obviously, if somebody has a much higher uh, you know, chase rate, so O swing on fan graphs is what that would be, um, you know, or you can also get the data on, on, uh, on Baseball Savant. Uh, I like to use the use fan graphs for for the plate skill data, but that's just me. So you know, if there's a huge change in O swing from you know where a, a hitter has been at previously to where they are now, a huge change in contact skills. Obviously, this early in the season, it can be something as simple as, oh hey, we were the Minnesota Twins and we only fl- faced Cleveland Indians pitching, or you know, hey, uh, we were. Um, you know, one of a number of teams that faced a bunch of crappy pitching. And so we're going to look much better than we already did. So if there's drastic changes in, you know, plate discipline or contact skills this early in the season, that is going to be obvious. Um, You know, that is obviously going to be the case. But one of the things that you may want to do is just, you know, uh, take a look at, um, you know, if there's a player who's struggling in particular, you know, just making sure that there aren't, uh, there isn't starting to be some inklings of of trouble. You know, if they weren't going up against the Indians and there are huge dips in contact skills or something like that, that's just something to kind of put a flag into and to monitor as part of your process. So don't take any, you know, huge anything from plate discipline and contract contact skills at this point in the season. Again, we're like four games, five games into the season, depending on when you're listening to this. But that's something that I do like to look at early in the season. And one of the reasons why I really like to look at that early on, on in the season um, is that uh, it, it, uh, the sample size is much larger than plate appearances because of what the denominator is. So in the, in the instance of you know, O swing or chase rate, every single pitch that a hitter faces outside the zone is the denominator, right? That's the sample size that we're looking at. And so within any given plate appearance, you know, you could have two, three, four pitches, even more, you know, depending on on what happens in that at bat, where the pitch is outside the zone. And so in those instances, the denominator is accruing much more quickly than plate appearances. So you can kind of get a sense, you know, a couple weeks into the season, if there might be any reason to be concerned. And so O swing and chase rate is something that I really, really like uh, to look at. And it's also a really good uh, proxy. Uh, It correlates well with, uh, you know, overall, overall the concept of plate discipline, but walk percentage, right? You know, as it would, as it, you know, is pretty intuitive, if a pitcher, if a a player is uh, not swinging at pitches outside the zone, then it's likely that, you know, their plate discipline is better by definition, but it's also likely that their walk rate is going to be higher, which is going to help out their OBP skills, uh, help them get on base. Now, there's other dynamics that enter into the play, right? How frequently a player swings at a pitch inside the zone, right? So a guy who, 
doesn't swing at pitches outside the zone, but is hyper aggressive on pitches inside the zone, may not have as high of a walk rate as you would expect, you know, because they're swinging at a lot of pitches in the zone and, and making contact there if they have a, a high in zone contact rate. So there's other variables, but it's a pretty good proxy. It correlates well with walk percentage and is a good metric to look at for plate discipline. So an example of how I might use it, and again, these examples are like of four games. So they're not really, really good examples, but this might be how in, you know, in two weeks or three weeks, how I might kind of approach a player that, that I find of interest. So if we take a look at the league leaders and walks right now, you know, there's a few guys that kind of jump out as being like a little bit of head scratchers just because they're not known for their plays discipline. So, you know, for, for example, Michael Franco has a 25% walk rate, right? That is, that is not sustainable. That is not uh, going to continue. Uh, Mike Moustakas has a 20% walk rate. Corey Dickerson has a 20% walk rate. Again, we're talking about four games, you know, but let's just say, okay, we want to find out if there's something meaningful you know, in there, right? Again, there's nothing meaningful at four games, but let's say it's two or three weeks down the road and we have a much larger sample size of uh, to look at. So last year, Franco had a 6.2% walk rate, which is uh, below the league, the league average. And he had a 35.4% O swing, which is worse than league average. So, you know, it's about 5% worse than league average. Uh, and not surprisingly, his walk rate is below league average. Now this year, you know, if we were to, if he were to still have a higher walk rate, you know, I might say, okay, well, let's take a look at O swing and let's see where that's at right now, because I want to find out if maybe some of this change that I'm seeing in walk rate is sustainable. Well, right now his O swing is 25%, which is much better than league average. That's very good. Uh, it's about 6% better than league average. So if in three or four weeks, I look at Michael Franco and he's got a 10, 11% walk rate. And I'm like, that's weird. I've never known him as a good plate discipline guy. Then I take a look at his O swing and it's at 25% compared to 35% last year. You know, that's a huge change and that really helps support that walk rate. So in that particular instance, you know, that lends a little bit more credence again a few weeks down the road to the fact that mm, maybe he's improved his plate discipline, right? And so similarly with Moustakis, last year he had a 7.7% uh, walk rate and his O swing was 37%. So uh, the walk rate slightly worse than the league average, the O swing much worse than league average. This year, you know, his walk rate is at 20%, as I mentioned before, and his O swing is at 23.8%. So, you know, about 13% uh, better than last year. Now, again, it's a very small sample, so this is uh, very unlikely. It's likely to regress towards his true talent, towards, um, you know, his mean, which is much more likely to be closer to his career average. But if he did have some sort of change in plate appearance, and in a couple weeks, if I were to notice that, hey, his walk rate is elevated, but also the O swing is there, you know, I would still expect regression, obviously. Um, but, you know, it may lend a little bit more credence to the fact that he actually has had a concrete change in his approach uh, that is somewhat meaningful. Uh, Corey Dickerson, last year, 3.9% walk rate. He's, one, he's got some of the worst plate discipline in the, in the league, 45.3% O-swing last year. So much worse than league average on both ends. You know, this year he's got the 20% walk rate um, and he's got a 33% O-swing this year. So much better again than league average, right? So 
Most likely, this is just a small sample size fluke. He's going to regress towards that. But this is, you know, a few weeks down the road because we have such a higher sample size. It might be something that I'd be a little bit more interested in seeing if it holds up. And even slight changes in these numbers can have, you know, a drastic impact, right? Like a, a, an increase of, you know, 2% um, in uh, walk rate if batting average and other elements of OBP hold steady, you know, that's a 20 point jump in OBP. So that can have a very significant, um, you know, uh, impact on folks, especially in OBP leagues. So just something to consider, you know, is taking a look at O-swing uh, as a good proxy for plate discipline and walk percentage because the sample size accrues at a much higher rate uh, than on a uh, per plate appearance. And so these are kind of guys who maybe I'm marking off in my head as, oh, you know, this is kind of interesting at this point in the season. You know, let's check back in in a couple weeks uh, to see if there is something concrete. Now, this can also work the same way, right? Let's say you have a guy who normally has a really high walk rate, and then you look at his walk rate, and it's it's much lower than usual. If you take a look, and the underlying metrics like O swing are the same, you know, you're going to expect at some point that to regress, you know, towards his uh, true talent level to the underlying metrics of O-swing. And so it works both ways, right? It can be improvement. It can be getting worse at these, you know, and just making sure that you're kind of checking O-swing because it, it does correlate well with walk percentage and using that as kind of a plate discipline metric overall. The next one that I look at for hitters is uh, contact rate overall and then in-zone contact rate, right? Because this measures uh, hitters' ability, not surprisingly, to make contact. And making contact is a big component of uh, strikeout rate, right? The lower your contact rate, uh, it's more likely uh, the higher your strikeout rate is going to be, or the higher your contact rate is, the higher your strikeout rate um, is going to be. And I oftentimes look at Z contact, and you'll see me share Z contact, and that's only because I care more about in zone contact because that is where the vast majority of good quality contact happens. So. In a lot of cases, if a guy swings at a pitch outside the zone, you know, I don't want them to make contact because chances are, unless they're Vlad Guerrero, uh, uh, Vlad Guerrero Sr., you know, that it's not going to be the best quality of contact like it would be on a pitch inside uh, inside inside the zone. And that's why plate discipline is so important too, is, you know, when you have the combination of good in-zone contact and good plate discipline, you know, it means that you are... Um, you know, making a ton of contact inside the zone and not chasing pitches outside of it. And so a higher percentage of your swings are coming on pitches uh, that are inside the zone, which is really, really nice. Um, and so, you know, I really like to use this as well, you know, and, and, and it stay, um, and the sample gets larger, you know, early in the season as well, because contact, at least on fan graphs, you know, if you go to a player page and you look at contact in zone contact, under the plate discipline tab, or like me, if you're like me, you've created a custom uh, dashboard and it's right there, you know, displayed prominently at the top of the page. I would definitely recommend that. I have a YouTube video on that if you are interested. So, um, you know, but every swing that a batter makes uh, is part of the contact rate. And so uh, overall contact rate is every single swing that the batter 
uh, makes. And then in-zone contact rate is every single swing on pitches inside the zone. And so again, the denominator is going to get higher quickly. The sample is going to get higher quickly. And so it may be, so, you know, not now because the sample size is really, really small, but after a few weeks, you know, you may be, start to be able to see some changes. And so similar to how you would look at O-swing to determine whether the walk percentage looks like it's something sustainable or in, in line with underlying skills, uh, in line with underlying past performance, you know, you also want to take a look at the contact rate to see if, you know, the same thing, um, uh, you know, if the same thing is happening with the K percentage. So if the K percentage is really high, the contact rate is staying the same overall, you know, then you would expect that K percentage to come down. But if a guy is demonstrating some real problems with their contact rate, maybe that strikeout percentage is going to stay elevated or regress slightly less to, you know, the true talent level or where they've been in the past. And so use that uh, contact rate and in-zone contact rate in this very similar way uh, to the way that you're using um, O-swing. And so after a couple weeks, you can actually get, you know, a decent, um, a decent look at where a player might be. Like you'll, you'll, you'll oftentimes um, hear things, you know, about stabilization point for different statistics, and they have those available at Fangraphs. And, you know, the, uh, I'm not a statistician, so I'll do my best to explain it. And then if somebody is a statistician and I do a really poor job, please follow up with me on Twitter. But, you know, I think the stabilization rates that they have listed on Fangraphs is essentially like at what point does a sample size, um, at what size does a, is a sample as likely to um, uh, be, uh, is, is as likely to correlate to the next same size sample size? Like essentially the R squared, at what point does it get to 0 0.49? Uh, the, the R squared being, you know, whether something is predictive or not. Right. So um, where does it kind of cross that threshold is my understanding of it. So at what sample size is the rate of a certain statistic? So let's take strikeout rate at 60 plate appearances, you know, for a hitter. You know, that's the point at which the following 60 plate appearances is as likely to be, um, you know, uh, at that rate um, as it is um, to be at the previous rate. I think I'm I'm getting that right. I may have explained that poorly. And if I did again, you know, let me know. But it doesn't mean that that is like some new um, skill level that, that the batter has reached and will stay at, you know, for the rest of the season. That's not necessarily what it means. It's just kind of a... a, a a point at which it hits that kind of 0 0.49 R squared uh, 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 level, essentially. I hope I've explained that well. If, again, if I haven't, somebody please um, correct me. But, um, and so, um, you know, so going back to Z contact, so an example might be, for instance, one of my favorite players, Adalberto Mondesi. You know, so far in his, uh, in his three games, his huge sample size of three games, uh, he has an 88% contact rate in those three games with a 93.5% in-zone contact rate. You know, so, you know, is that 
is that meaningful? You know, we don't know yet, obviously, because it's a very, very small sample size. Um, you know, but a few weeks down the road, if he's holding on to those contacts rate, that would be very, very interesting. Now, one thing that I will point out is I like to use rolling average graphs sometimes just to see whether a very small sample size kind of fits within the, the usual variance of a hitter. So, you know, is it at a high, at the highest rate it's ever been or the lowest rate it's ever been, you know, or does it just seem like it's part of the overall variation, the overall variance that you have in any any type of statistic. Well, so for instance, with Adalberto Mondesi, that 88% contact rate in his first three games is actually actually the highest contact rate that he's ever had in a three-game stretch in his career. Again, do we know whether that's meaningful or not? At this point, we don't. But it does give me a little bit of hope, particularly coupled with the fact that his strikeout rate was lower than it usually is um, during uh, spring training. So, you know, is it is it a change in his profile? I don't know yet, but, you know, there's a couple kind of notches right there where I'm just kind of thinking, oh, you know, that's really interesting. If he's at a similar rate right now, which would be about 20% higher than his usual contact rate in a couple weeks, then I'll be very, very uh, intrigued by it. So again, you know, Z contact and contact rate, I really like to look at that because, you know, uh, the sample size accrues much larger than higher than plate appearances. And then, um, you know, again, using it in the same way, um, you know, as, as I talked about the O swing. Uh, another metric that I like to look at, um, also available on fan graphs, is the ground ball and fly ball rate. Um, and so this is really a proxy for, you know, launch angle. And so if you want to use StatCast data, you can also look at, uh, you know, the launch angle um, if you want to be more precise. Um, I used to, you know, really rely heavily on xstats.org, but, you know, Andrew Perpetua got picked up by the Mets. And so uh, that's not active anymore. And so, you know, but ground ball and fly ball rate is something that people are generally familiar with. Um, and so, you know, unlike... The other metrics I talked about, the sample size is smaller uh, than plate appearances because it's every single batted ball being the sample. So the sample size is smaller. Uh, but you can, there is research that's been done that you can garner some meaning from, you know, even some small samples. So for instance, the uh, stabilization point uh, for ground ball and fly ball rate is 80 balls in play. Uh, you know, and so that's not necessarily, that's not huge. So, you know, if a player's getting two to three balls in play, um, you know, every single game, you know, you're looking at, uh, you know, again, like uh, 40 games, 30 games, something like that in order to get a decent sample size for that. Uh, but, you know, if there are some uh, drastic changes in that ground ball, fly ball, a ratio it can often point toward a change in uh, overall batted ball approach and so again you know it's very small sample sizes i'm going to continue to put out that caveat but there is something to be gleaned sometimes by even um you know big changes that you might see over small samples in ground ball and fly ball for instance you know one example that's been highlighted over and over again at the beginning of the season is christian yelich he has a fly ball percentage through his first four games of 63.6%, which is insanely high, particularly for a guy who generally leads the league in having one of the lowest fly ball percentages. Well, what's interesting is if you chart out his four game rolling average across his entire career, 
the 63.6% fly ball rate over four games is actually tied for his second highest four-game rate ever. Now, the highest four-game rate that he's ever had, that was the four games leading up to the end of last season. So, very interesting, right? Over not only the first four games of this season, but also over the last four games of last season. So over an eight-game sample, you're looking at the highest eight-game sample of fly ball percentage in the career of Christian Yelich. Now, you know, this is super interesting because it's outside of the usual variance that we would see uh, for Yelich, you know, across his career. And so what I would do in this particular scenario and what I did do is let's take a look at a bigger, bigger sample. And what do we see in a larger sample? Well, if we use a 40-game rolling average for Christian Yelich, the last 40 games is actually Christian Yelich's highest fly ball rate of any 40 games of his career. Now, it's only at 32.5%, so still below league average, but that's definitely something. And I talked about this when I did the profile for Yelich, and one of the reasons why I had him you know, as one of my highest rated batters this year, it didn't help me out because I was going pitching so strong early on that I didn't get him in any drafts. Uh, but you know, is that the reason why he had such a huge surge in home runs last year, it was partially, you know, just an insanely high home run per fly ball rate, which is somewhat sustainable because he has a very high hard hit fly ball rate. But it was also because in addition to having a spike in hard hit fly ball rate, he also had, you know, a spike in fly ball rate overall. And so, you know, is this a, a change that will continue moving forward for Yelich? You know, uh, time will tell, but I feel fairly confident in saying that there's been some sort of approach change for Yelich uh, over his last 40 plus games where he is trying to hit the ball in the air more. He's also been highly successful over the last 40 games or so for Yelich. And so there's no reason to think that he would try to make a change in that approach if it is indeed uh, a change in approach for Yelich. And so a lot of the regression for Yelich was predicated on the fact that he would continue to have very, very low uh, fly ball rates. Now, if you boost up that fly ball rate uh, considerably over his career average and where he's averaged the last couple seasons, then that changes the conversation a little bit. And if he's able to maintain those hard hit fly ball skills, that exit velocity at uh, high at the right launch angles, his barrel rate also surged. All of those contact measure measures surged at the same time. You know, then you know we may not expect as much regression at all from Yelich. Um, you know, and so that is something that's really really interesting to monitor. So that's an extreme example, but I think that's how you can kind of use ground ball and fly ball rate. So, you know, they both they both kind of work. I oftentimes like to look at ground ball rate because there's a lot of noise in line drive rate. You know, line drive rates uh, in the vast majority of instances have a lot of variance uh, because they're the lowest percentage of, of ball that's hit. So you see a lot of variance in them. So oftentimes I'll look at ground ball rate just to see what percentage of balls a player is hitting in the air. Um, and so that's how I kind of use ground ball fly rep ball rate. So look to see if there are any major changes in small samples earlier this year. 
look at the rolling average graph to see whether it's the continuation of a larger trend that started in the previous year, um, and then just monitor as that sample size increases uh, to see whether we're, we may be looking at you know, a, a change in the batted ball profile of a player, which can have a huge impact. We've seen it you know, throughout you know, every single year, there's a guy who increases his launch angle and as a result hits you know 10 more home runs which is huge so it can it can be the the difference between a guy going from 10 to 20 or a guy going from 20 to 30 you know or or in some instances even more so definitely pay attention to that ground ball fly ball rate or launch angle um, however uh, you like to think about it if you are going to use launch angle you know you may also want to just look at the percentage of their balls that are being hit you know in home run launch angles or in launch angles where you do da- damage with, uh, on balls, um, you know, in the air. So generally speaking, like, you know, 10 to 19 is generally your low fly, your low line drive. So looking maybe 17 to 30 plus, um, in that kind of launch angle range, uh, max exit velocity is also something that I look for, for hitters. So hitting the ball hard is a skill. Not everybody is able to have a very, very high max exit velocity, right? D Gordon doesn't have a high max max exit velocity, whereas a guy like Joey Gallo will, right? Uh, Only some players can hit the ball really, really hard. So even one hard hit batted ball can tell us a lot about the type of quality a hitter can make, right? So like Daniel Palka is a good example last year where he kind of came onto the scene and, you know, he hit a bunch of home runs. And if you look at his max exit velocity, um, you know, it's... um, it's really, really high. And so you knew just from the first time that he hit that ball, you know, he has the fourth highest max exit velocity at 118.4. The moment he hit a ball 118.4 miles per hour, he joined Giancarlo Stanton, Gary Sanchez, Aaron Judge, uh, Carlos Gonzalez, Mike Trout, Hanley Ramirez, Joey Gallo, and a bunch of other extreme power hitters. Right, and so a max exit velocity hit of, that's really high can tell us something. For instance, Pete Alonso hit his first home run today. That batted ball had a max exit velocity of one twelve point eight miles per hour off the bat. Right, one hundred twelve point eight miles per hour off the bat, which is really really good. Last year, out of nine hundred and eleven hitters who put a ball in play, only ninety eight hitters had at least one batted ball of 112.8 miles per hour or higher. So that tells us right away that he's almost in the 90th percentile uh, of max exit velocity after only four games in the major leagues. That tells us something about the power we can expect. Now that doesn't surprise us at all about Pete, uh, about Pete Alonso, right? We knew that he had massive power and this is just kind of confirming what we already knew. But, you know, if we see a guy like Daniel Palka, right, who had power, but we just really didn't know how much, uh, step up and hit, you know, that type of batted ball, who may not have the same type of prospect pedigree, that tells us something, you know, about the quality of contact that they can make. You know, that's just one element of it, but it doesn't tell us how much contact they're going to make, how often they're going to hit the ball you know, hard at a launch angle that can do damage, but it does tell us something. And so that's also something that I pay attention to in small sample sizes. The other thing that I'll look at, you know, just throughout the year is expected WOBA, 
Uh, so on Baseball Savant, you can find this under the expected metrics. And what I'm really looking at here is there in small sample sizes, there's a lot of noise uh, in terms of WOBA, batting average, BABIP, things of that nature. So what I'm really looking for at, at expected WOBA is a true talent on balls and play. WOBA also incorporates things like walks and strikeouts and things of that nature, right? But you know, overall, in terms of batted ball quality, it helps give me a sense of whether somebody is making really good contact. You know, if their ex-WOBA is a lot higher than their WOBA, it may tell me that a guy is being unlucky. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and I might expect that to improve, or if a guy's got a really low expected WOBA, it might confirm to me that he's not hitting the ball well. Now, again, this doesn't mean that he's not going to hit the ball well later. Paul Goldschmidt is a really good example. His ex-WOBA was not that good early last season, but he's still Paul Goldschmidt. And so he's, when he, you know, he went on a hot streak and all of a sudden he was one of the best hitters in baseball uh, over the last five months of the season. And so it doesn't tell you everything, but particularly for um, as the sample size gets larger and for guys who might be a surprise on that list, that's one of the ways that helped me identify Max Muncy early on last year was the fact that he had you know a, a high expected WOBA, partially because of his walks, but also the quality of contact. And that was also confirmed by looking at his barrels per plate appearance and his barrels per batted ball event. That pointed out the fact that he was making some really, really good quality contact. So looking at ex-WOBA and barrels is something that you can look at just to get a sense of the quality of contact that a player is making. And as the sample size gets larger, you start to believe a little bit more in terms of the contact. And you can also use it similarly uh, to identify guys who may be getting really, really unlucky on balls in play, especially as that sample size increases. So, you know, that's kind of the hitters. And those are some of the metrics that I like to look at. You know, again, O-swing as a proxy for plate discipline and walk percentage, Z-contact and contact uh, in terms of, you know, as a proxy for K percentage and batting average, or at least, you know, kind of correlated or helpful in, in kind of identifying some of those things. Uh, ground ball and fly ball rate in terms of the batted ball profile. And then max exit velocity, expected woba and barrels in terms of the quality of contact that a batter is able to make. All right, now I'm going to hop over to the pitchers. So the things that I'm uh, looking for in pitchers, uh, again, you know, one nice thing about pitchers is, you know, a lot of times, you know, whereas a batter is going to get, you know, three, four, five plate appearances in a game, depending on where they are in the lineup and how well the offense does, pitchers are going to face, you know, uh, 20 batters a game, 20 plus batters a game, at least if they're having a good outing. Uh, and so the sample sizes also accrue uh, much more, you know, quickly, although obviously like they're not pitching every single game, uh, but it does give you like a decent sense after maybe three or four starts uh, if something has changed uh, for a player. Now, three things that I do look at um, early on in the season, even after one start, are velocity pitch mix and new pitches. Those are three things that I'm looking at from the very from the get-go. Now, velocity is the biggest change that a pitcher can make to be successful. Uh, velocity is strongly uh, you know, correlated with, uh, well, I don't know if it's strongly correlated with success, but just take a look at the pitchers with the highest uh, average fastball velocity, and you're gonna see a lot of the best pitchers in baseball at the very top of that list. It's incredibly important. 
and so um, we've seen what we saw last year, and we'll see again this year, what adding velocity can do for pitchers. Last year, Garrett Cole had his highest average fastball velocity since 2012. So did Jacob deGrom, two guys who you know really went from good slash very good pitchers to elite starters uh, last year. Throwing the ball harder makes everything better um, and can also mask a lot of flaws. When you look at batted ball quality versus velocity, the faster uh, the pitch is, you know, the harder it is for folks to make uh, high quality contact. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, for some pitchers with, you know, really high velocity that their pitch isn't meaty, right? Like uh, Nick Pavetta throws, you know, pretty hard, right? He's not elite, but he's got a very high, you know, fastball velocity. So does Luis Severino. That didn't stop them from getting hit hard last year. So there's also other elements to it, like movement of those pitches, you know, command, control, etc. you know, the count. But, you know, the underlying factor or the most important there uh, is uh, velocity. Um, and one thing to note too, is that, you know, uh, Generally speaking, research shows that starting pitchers don't reach their max velocity until a little while into the season. And so that's something to be cognizant of as you look at average fastball velocities right now. They may not be what a what a pitcher was at last year, but it may also take time for them to get there. Take a look at previous seasons in kind of like a month-by-month month or start-by-start start velocity. You can do that on Brooks Baseball. Uh, that's probably the best place to do it. I like to look at their velocity metrics. You could also look at, you know, uh, Statcast data through Baseball um, Savant. Just make sure you're looking at apples to apples. So compare Brooks Baseball to Brooks Baseball, uh, Savant to Savant, Fangraphs to Fangraphs, etc. Because they are relying on the same underlying. They aren't all relying on the same underlying technology to measure that. And so making sure that you're just comparing apples to apples there. So if a guy's down a little bit, don't be too concerned. It's kind of larger shifts in velocity, you know, that, uh, that you might be interested in or concerned about. And so, you know, one example of this is Mike Clevenger today, you know, was, I think he was sitting, uh, I should probably look this up, um, before, um, <laughs> before I say this, actually, I'm going to do that right now. This is me working on the fly. Um, right now. So I saw a number of tweets that he was at his kind of max um, velocity uh, where he had been, you know, his couple miles per hour over his average velocity uh, where he had been. So let's see here, home pitchers. Oh, and if you want to look at uh, the average velocity, yeah. Uh, oh, so StatCast has Clevenger's average velocity at 94.8 um, on his fastball. So not at the, um, you know, he was, he was maxing out uh, at, at 98. But then we can look at kind of where he was at last year. Last year with his four-seamer, he was at 93.6. So he is already up 1.2 miles per hour from what he averaged overall last year. And then if you wanted to, you could go to Brooks Baseball um, and, you know, see where he was at uh, today compared to um, last year you know, using the same website. Now, if you want to look, this is a super, super helpful tool is the game feed tool on Baseball Savant that allows you 
live to take a look at velocity, swinging strike rate for pitchers. You just go to game feed, then you select um, the particular game that you're interested in. So I would choose the Cleveland versus White Sox game. And then in the first to the far left on the drop down menu, just go to home pitchers and away pitchers. So I can see Mike Clevenger. He maxed out at 97.2. His average fastball velocity was 94.8. He had 20 swinging strikes on 106 pitches, including 12 on 61 uh, four-seam fastballs, which is excellent. Um, you know, so that that can just let you see in in real time how well a pitcher is doing. So that game feed app is super super critical. So anyway, so we can already see that Mike Clevenger is up 1.2 miles per hour. You know, you could then look, you know, and for instance, and say, okay, I'm going to go to the leaderboards on Baseball Savant. I'm going to go to pitchers. I'm going to go to um, uh, pitch arsenals. Uh, so I'm going to go, instead of exit velocity and barrels, I'm going to go to pitch arsenals. And then I'm going to say, okay, where would Clevenger have rated? So I'm going to go, you know, for a minimum of 500 pitches among all pitchers. So actually, I'm going to change it to 1,000 so that it's, uh, will that even get me there? I don't know. Nope, that won't get me there. I'm going to go to 1,500. 1,500 pitches. So, okay, so this is pretty much only starting pitchers. So then I would say, okay, so Mike Clevenger, 94.8 miles per hour, where would that? That would have him as the 23, the 23rd fastest four-seam fastball of all starting pitchers last year, tied with Nick Pavetta, the aforementioned Nick Pavetta. The good thing about uh, Clevenger is that he's got two good breaking pitches, uh, and his, his fastball is bad, but um, not quite as bad as Pavetta's. Um, and his breaking stuff is better. So, you know, that just will tell you, oh, okay, wow. So, you know, 23rd fastest fastball already. Maybe you add on a tick, you know, for him, uh, you know, reaching his max exit velocity or max velocity later in the season. You know, that is, um, that is really nice. So that would be an example of how you can look up velocity using different tools, even in game to see how somebody's doing. As pitchers start to throw their second starts, you can also, you know, take a look at where they are compared to last week. So like with Chris Sale, you know, is he gaining velocity this this uh, week? You know, a lot of p- folks pointed out that his velocity was down from last year, but they were looking at the average from last year. And I'm also guilty of this, so I'm not putting it on anybody else but you know if you look at him from a start by start basis it's not as stark and you also have to consider that the Red Sox started him late in the season and so maybe that's why the velocity is there that's why I'm hoping so because I've got him in a couple really important leagues all right so velocity is really really important Uh, pitch mix is also incredibly important and so you can find the pitch mix um you know, uh, one thing, there's a variety of different ways to do that. Uh, so number one, you can go to Brooks baseball, uh, search for, uh, the player, uh, you look at their pitcher and then go to usage and outcomes. And then you can look at, uh, how they use their repertoire, uh, from a game by game basis, month to month, season to season, just to see if there are any major changes, um, in the pitch mix. You can also go to, uh, fan graphs and then you can look at, um, they also have the uh, pitch percentages, they have pitch info, and then they've got, you know, just uh, pitch FX, I think, uh, data. I like pitch FX the best. Um, so you can look at the percentage of pitches that were different pitches. You can then use Savant data maybe in the game feed to see if there were any changes there. 
or go in in Savant under the StatCast label within Profiles. You can also see how their pitch mix was the year before. So essentially there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of go there and see it. One way I like to do is do a rolling average graph for a player um, and then choose the pitch type and then take a look at how that changed during last year. And so just to make sure that, you know, towards the end of last year, maybe they already implemented a change and they're continuing to do that this year. Whereas if you look at their full season repertoire, you know, it'll, it'll look like a drastic change. So that in that case, you may say, okay, so he has the same pitch mix as the last 10 games of last year. I'm going to look at how he did that year to figure out how he might do. So these small changes can have a dramatic impact on the underlying skills. So for instance, last year, Herman Marquez threw his slider a maximum of 13.9% in the first three months of the season. So on a monthly basis, 13.9% was the most he threw the slider of uh, you know, uh, of all his pitches in any given month. Over the last three months of the season, the minimum was 22.7%. So a full 9% um, higher uh, percentage when he was super successful at the end of last year because he started throwing his best pitch, his slider, more often with the highest swinging strike rate, and that drives his high his swinging strike rate way up. He threw his curveball more too. Those are his two highest swinging strike rate pitches, and it just drives the success of his repertoire overall. Similarly, Garrett Cole's last year with the Pirates, his highest percentage of curveballs he threw in any month was 14.97%, so essentially 15% was the highest percentage of curveballs he threw in any given month. In his first year with the Astros, the fewest of any month was 16.35%, and there were some months when he was up as high as 20 plus percent. And so, you know, that pitch has a higher swinging strike rate, and what did he replace? He replaced his sinker. His last season with the Pirates, he threw 591 sinkers, which had a 3.9% swinging strike rate, which is atrocious. Never throw sinkers. Um, And he replaced, he only threw 97 sinkers last year with the Astros. So just by throwing, you know, 500 fewer sinkers, you knew for a fact that his swinging strike rate was going to shoot up because he's replacing it with pitches that have higher swinging strike rates. And he replaced it with his curveball, which had, you know, it was the third highest swinging strike rate uh, last year of his pitches, but it was second before that. So you just knew that his swinging strike rate was going to go up. And as a result, his K percentage was going to go up. And as a result of that, you know, he was probably going to be a better pitcher. Uh, Another example would be uh, Blake Snell. Uh, I don't know if you can hear my cat. It is meowing to get outside in the middle of the podcast. Can you believe that? Like what type of uh, tact does my cat, Vicious Jackson, uh, jam for short? What what type of tact does he have interrupting my podcast, meowing to get outside? This is unbelievable. But the really good news, ladies and gentlemen, this is breaking news, is that my wife, who is an incredible in her own right, has come over has gotten Vicious Jackson, has picked him up, and is now taking him outside. That right there, ladies and gentlemen, the save is a very overrated statistic, context-dependent. That, ladies and gentlemen, that maneuver by my wife, getting the meowing cat off the air on the podcast is a save. Uh, It's just unfortunate I can't count that uh, in my fantasy baseball 
leagues because I, in some leagues, I'm desperate for saves. Uh, anyways, so thank you. Uh, thank you for that, Kirsten. All right. So uh, Blake Snell is another really good example how, of how pitch mix can drive success or can drive changes. Last year, as the, the season progressed, he threw fewer and fewer fastballs. Um, and most importantly, he started throwing his curveball a ton. And as a result, his swinging strike rate was uh, upwards of, over his last 10 games, I think it was 17 plus percent, which is just insanely high. Uh, last year, I think Max Scherzer led the league at like 15.6%, something like that. So, you know, and that was because of a pitch mix change. You know, but, you know, one thing I'll say about pitch mix changes is often as you throw your fastball less, you're relying more on breaking in off-speed pitches. Generally speaking, those have uh, lower zone percentages, so they're in the zone less, and they rely on, on hitters chasing on pitches outside the zone. And so oftentimes you may see an impact in terms of control uh, if a guy is throwing, you know, a pitch more. So a good example would be like, Patrick Corbin, he was successful last year, but his zone percentage was very, very low. It was in like the mid to, I think it was like 37%. So one of the lowest rates I think in the league. And that's because he can't throw his slider for strikes, but his slider also gets, you know, one of the highest chase rates on pitches outside the zone. So when you added it all up, he was still below average in terms of throwing, in terms of getting strikes compared to league average. Um, but you know, uh, you know, it ended up working for him because he was striking out so many more batters and not giving up contact. So there's kind of, there's always like a give and take in this. And that's something that you really need to be aware of is how a change in picks, Mitch, like take a look at the splits page. So on fan graphs, go to fan graphs, go to, uh, splits. And then, um, uh, from there, uh, you can do, uh, on the far right is pitch types and you just select that and then you go to all. You can actually look at that for hitters too. I use it mostly for pitchers, um, but you know it's a really, really helpful uh, metric right there. So that is um, you know, one thing that, uh, that I would do and think about the give and take, right? So okay, they're throwing this pitch more, which means that the O swing is gonna go up. So they're gonna chase on pitches inside, outside the zone more. The zone percentage is gonna go down, but how much is it gonna go down? Um, and then, um, you know, that means the swinging strike rate is going to go up. So the K percentage is going to go up, but maybe the walk percentage is also going to go up a little bit. The best case scenario is, you know, the, the K percentage goes up and the O swing, uh, uh, makes enough of a difference, you know, compared to the zone percentage decrease that you're also going to get a consistent walk rate or even a better walk rate. So just think about how those things work. And so this pitch mix has already been successful um, for some folks through one start. Again, we don't know if it's going to continue. It's just one start. It's just, again, it's one opponent. Maybe they had a particular scouting report on it. But Marcus Stroman, for instance, um, through his uh, sinker, uh, fewer uh, than... Uh, uh, he threw fewer sinkers and he threw more sliders than he normally did. And that's big because Stroman's best pitch is his slider. I think he also threw more uh, change-ups, which was also a decent pitch for him. I may just be making that up, so don't uh, believe me on that for sure. But definitely the slider usage. Luis Castillo, for instance, with the new Reds pitching coach, he threw one sinker compared to throwing that on like 15% of his pitches last year. And all of those 
Uh, all of that increase went to his changeup, which is by far his best pitch. Um, so that's really encouraging for Castillo. And then Yanni Chirinos, for instance, through his splitter, I think more than he had um, previously. Um, and so, you know, there's another, there's other examples, Jordan Zimmerman, other ones, but I think the key is really to monitor, you know, whether that's something that's consistent from, you know, start to start. Is that an actual change in approach that they're having? Was it just a one thing, one time thing? Kind of monitor this, see how that works, and then uh, investigate the relationship between all of those pitches to determine whether it's a good thing, a bad thing, or whatnot. But you'd be surprised at how many guys can just improve by throwing their worst pitch less and their best pitch more. The next thing, and this is one that you don't see all that often, but is new pitches. And so new pitches can really revolutionize a player's value. So many pitchers struggle with only having one or two quality pitches. Like if you look just really quickly on pitch splits, you can go to WRC Plus and look at how many pitches a pitcher has that are where league, uh, where batters are wor- worse than or better than league average against it. Um, and it's really hard to find guys who have multiple pitches better than league average. So being able to throw a new pitch can really revolutionize, uh, you know, a pitcher just overall, especially if they're going from having, you know, uh, two good pitches to three good pitches or, you know, one good pitch to two good pitches and then one medium one. Like Jamison Tyone is a good example last year where his slider wasn't all it's cracked up to be. It it actually had a lower, it only had the second highest swinging strike rate, but it did help look like it helped boost his other pitches. And so that was a good example of a a change in pitch mix that helped him bump up by about 1% in terms of his swinging strike rate, which doesn't sound like a lot, you know, but, um, uh, you know, that's, that can make a, a, a huge, um, you know, uh, impact for, uh, for a guy. And so, um, you know, that is something to, uh, to really be looking at is that those new pitches. So a good example of somebody who's struggled with just a two pitch repertoire, Chris Archer, you know, is somebody who has always had a pretty good slider, you know, his fastball is meh, it's not that good, but, you know, part of that is the fact that he's never been able to develop this changeup he's always worked on. You know, Michael Pineda is another example of a guy, you know, who had a good fastball, good slider, um, or not that good of a fastball, but a good slider, but could really never take that next step because he didn't have that third pitch. It'll be interesting to see getting out of Yankee Stadium, whether that improves. But the best example so far of a guy who has a new pitch that I can think of or that I've heard is Frankie Montes of the Oakland A's. He's always thrown very hard, very hard fastball. He's got a decent slider, um, but he looked like he was going to be a bullpen arm because he only had those two pitches. Well, over the offseason, he developed a splitter. He was using it in spring training to great success, and he also threw it, I think, like 17 times um, during his first outing uh, this this year. Um, and as a result of that, you know, he now has like a, a, a you know, I wouldn't, I won't go as far as to say that, um, you know, it was necessarily a, um, uh, uh, a knockout pitch. You know, I, let me, let me see. I'm going to look it up really, uh, quickly here, uh, for the A's. I can't remember if you threw Sunday or Saturday, but don't you just love like looking up these things on the fly? Uh, I feel so much pressure. Yeah. So he threw on Sunday. So I would look into the Savant. I'd look at, you know, he was at home, I believe. Um, So go to home pitchers under the game feed app. So Frankie Montes, yeah, he threw 17 splitters. He had four swinging strikes 
And so, you know, right there, you're looking at over 20% swinging strike rate on that pitch. You know, whereas, you know, his, his slider got three out of 22, so decent. Forcing fastball got one out of 13. So you can see how that can really, you know, change somebody's swinging strike rate, um, you know, really quickly. Let's take a look at him last year. So, for instance, last year, his swinging strike rate was only 8.6%. Uh, so far this year, it's at 10.4%, so almost a jump of two percentage points. And then when we look at last year in his pitch splits, the highest swinging strike rate that any pitch he threw was his slider at 14.3%. Uh, if we look at his splitter this year, it's at 17.7% according to uh, Fangraph. So they probably have him down for three uh, swinging strikes instead of the four. Again, it can fluctuate a little bit from... Uh, site to site based on the the data source that they use. He also got a high chase rate, you know, on that pitch. He was able to throw it in the zone at a decent amount for a splitter, especially at 41.2%. So you can just kind of see right there how that pitch might revolutionize uh, his value. So that's an example of how uh, a new pitch uh, might do that. Um, so be on the lookout for, or, you know, just look for, um, hearing about that, uh, for different pitchers. I haven't heard many situations where there's a new pitch. It doesn't happen that often. Uh, but that Frankie Montes is one example. And one guy that I might be monitoring the next little bit in shallower leagues and 15 team leagues, he's probably, um, already been drafted because of that spring training that he had, uh, outside of those three, there are some metrics that I still look at, uh, swinging strike rate, for instance, um, it has the highest correlation of plate discipline metrics on fan graphs, you know, and just generally um, as K percentage. It's also called, um, uh, I, it's not called uh, whiff rate. A whiff rate is contact measure at, at StatCast. Anyways, they all have different, you know, metrics that they um uh, that they that they use. I think they call it miss percentage or something like that, whatever it is. But on Fangraph, swinging strike rate is essentially uh, how what percentage of pitches are swung on and missed uh, from a uh, from a uh, pitcher, and it correlates strongly with K percentage. Um, and it also, because the denominator is pitches, the sample size is pitches. It accrues much more quickly than like batters faced. Um, so after just a few starts, you may get some meaningful data. You know, the caveat I'd say is like after one start, there's a lot of guys with very high swinging strike rates right now, you know, and a lot of them uh, pitched against the Giants, the Padres, the Indians, the Royals, the White Sox. There's a lot of bad teams. And so make sure that the Tigers, the Blue Jays, there's a lot of really bad teams. So just make sure that you're using that filter too, you know, and, and so that's why you want to wait for a, at least a few starts, see how they do against better opponents. Um, for instance, in addition to looking at, you know, those things I mentioned before, like pitch mix, velocity, uh, new pitches, um, you know, and, and also look if there's a change in swinging strike rate, what is the underlying reason? Is velocity up? Is there a new pitch mix where they're throwing their higher swinging strike rate pitch more often? Is there a new pitch that they're throwing like Frankie Montes? That's like the really key part is don't just look at the metric. Try to figure out the under, try to answer why. Why is the swinging strike rate higher? Is the velocity up? Is there a change in the pitch mix? Is there a new pitch that it looks like they're throwing? Try to find out the why um, so that you can justify why a player is getting better. Otherwise, you know, if you can't find the reason why, more likely than not, you know, it's just noise. It's just variance from start to start. Uh, so that's really, really key there. Some other metrics that I that I would look at, you know, first pitch strike rate, 
uh, O swing, contact rate, zone percentage, you know, first pitch strike rate, um, and zone percentage and O swing, those are really control metrics. So, you know, you want to have a high first pitch strike rate, you're getting ahead of batters, you want pitcher batters to swing at pitches outside the zone, both because, you know, they're more likely to swing and miss on pitches outside the zone and because they're more likely to make weak contact. And then you also want a pitcher to be throwing the, the ball in the zone because, you know, if you throw it in the zone more, then you're less likely to give up walks. And you have to have a really high O swing to compensate for a very low zone percentage. A good example of that being Patrick Corbin, even though, you know, uh, he's going to he's gonna rest this year. He was well below league average on walk percentage last year. He's definitely going to be closer to league average, I think, this year. Um, anyways, and then contact rate similar to hitters. Um, so again you know, you're getting decent, you're getting, you know, 20 plus, uh, sample sizes on first pitch strike, you know, on, um, uh, and then, you know, every single pitch is incorporated into zone percentage. Every single uh, pitch outside the zone is incorporated into O swing. And then every single swing is incorporated into contact and Z contact for, for pitchers. So, you know, take a look at those metrics as well. So for instance, like, you know, if a guy's strikeout percentage is way up, you know, you may want to take a look and see if their swinging strike rate is up, if their uh, contact rate is down, you know, if their walk percentage is down, is their first pitch strike rate up and their zone percentage uh, up, you know, so on and so forth, uh, just to investigate again why. It does do the underlying metrics support, you know, what I'm seeing in a guy's profile, especially, you know, as that sample size um, gets bigger. And then you can also look up called strikes on Baseball Savant. If you go to the search page and you just uh, click on uh, pitch outcome and then you click on called strike, you know, then you can look for a pitcher by name or just as the full league. And so those that, that's an example of another metric that you might want to look at. And then there's guys like Aaron Nola, Steven Matz and, and others that tend to get on a consistent basis more uh, called strikes uh, than you know, the average pitcher. And that's something that's shown similar to swinging strike rate, you know, to kind of hold. And then similar to with hitters, one of the things that I will uh, look at a lot is uh, ex-WOBA for pitchers, the difference between the ex-WOBA and the WOBA. And the nice thing about that is, you know, the more, the the bigger the sample size, the more you should see the ex-WOBA and the WOBA get closer um, together. So I had a tweet that I sent out earlier today. It was the unluckiest starting pitchers by WOBA minus ex-WOBA with at least a league average uh, expected WOBA of 315. So an example would be like Matt Boyd, who pitched really, really well, had a really high swinging strike rate. He was going against the Blue Jays, but still really high swinging strike rate. You know, he did get beat up a little bit. He gave up a number of earned runs. But when you look at the WOBA that he gave up, it was 276, right? A lot of strikeouts, not a lot of walks, but he did get hit around a little bit. But when you look at his expected WOBA, it was actually 152, with 315 being league average. Like, obviously, he's not going to maintain 152 expected you know, expected WOBA or WOBA or even a 276 probably, um, you know, that will regress to the true, true talent measure. But similarly, the expected WOBA and the WOBA gap should close. So Boyd's been unlucky so far. So the larger that sample becomes, the more likely he is to get closer to that expected WOBA. And so that's something that I would 
definitely continue to monitor and that's something that I'll share. Some other examples, Marco Gonzalez, a 384 WOBA compared to a 285 expected WOBA. Masahiro Tanaka, 257 WOBA compared to a 159 expected WOBA. One, you know, two, I think three really good examples of pitchers who may have pitched better than their uh, starts indicate. Noah Syndergaard had a 365 WOBA, but his expected WOBA was 277. Tyler Glasnow, 356 WOBA, 272 expected WOBA. Lance Lynn, 396 um, WOBA, 308 expected WOBA. 308 is probably about, you know, uh, league average for, you know, or even worse than league average for fantasy relevant starting pitchers. But it's still important to note how much but good or bad luck is coming into play, especially in early season samples where, you know, where luck is much more likely uh, to play, you know, a critical role. And so that's what I might look at. You know, I might look at barrels and things like that, you know, uh, although it's much better to look at kind of last season's barrel since there's a high year to year correlation um, there. So, you know, in terms of pitchers, so looking at velocity pitch mix and new pitches as really the kind of concrete three early season metrics or signs that I'm looking for, uh, for changes in a pitcher, swinging strike rate, you know, being up there as well, you know, first pitch strike, O swing, contact and zone percentage um, as well. And then expected WOBA in terms of the batted ball uh, quality. Again, I used to use xstats.org, but it's no longer relevant. So anyways, so again, it's early season, uh, early season sample sizes, Things can change really, really quickly. Literally over a day or two, a hitter can go from a terrible start um, to a good start. You know, like Yasiel Puig entering today was 0 for 7. You know, he got one hit and had two RBIs. And so at a certain point, you know, he was probably on average from a plate appearance perspective to get like 100, you know, RBI, you know, after, 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 after having zero, right? After being on pace for zero. So... There's just huge swings early on in the season. Don't make any huge changes in terms of talent evaluation and skill evaluation based on that very small sample size. But there are some early season metrics that I like to point to as part of my process, you know, to kind of help support or negate um, any, you know, um, the the sustainability of any changes that I'm seeing in in outcomes and underlying skills. Uh, you know, in, in other metrics that, that are valuable in terms of fantasy baseball uh, analysis, you know, so for hitters and for pitchers. So I hope this was, uh, was helpful uh, and not just me blabbering on, being interrupted occasionally by my cat. Uh, if you do have any questions or, you know, some clarifications, especially on the description of the stabilization, I tried to stay away from that, that um, you know, that, uh, that language of, you know, uh, 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 the point at which a metric becomes stable or reliable, just because I think there's a lot of confusion about what that actually means. Um, and so, you know, uh, that's why I focus more on kind of some of these underlying metrics that will get a larger sample size quicker than maybe batters faced or plate appearances. That is going to wrap us up for episode 69 of the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. Thank you so so very much for listening. I hope that early season metrics to monitor, early season metrics to monitor, early season metrics to monitor, I did it three times fast, uh, was helpful. You know, we covered a little O swing, we covered a little Z contact, contact, ground ball, fly ball rate, max exit velocity, expected WOBA, barrels, 
all that good stuff with the hitters. On the pitcher side, we took a look at velocity, we took a look at pitch mix, took a look at new pitches, swinging strike rate, first pitch strike rate, zone percentage, contact rate, O-swing, X-WOBA, batted ball quality, all of that good stuff, all to answer the question, why? Why is a player playing better? Why is a player playing worse? Or why is a player the exact same as they have always been? So hopefully you find that helpful early on in the season and you're able to take some of what I shared and integrate that into your own process and that it's a value add there. So as usual, best of luck with all of your early season fantasy baseball research. Take care and be kind to one another.